welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, international trade and what to do about NAFTA. And Richard, we have known since back during the presidential campaign that President Trump is – in some cases at least, something of a trade skeptic. He backed away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was the trade deal that would have bound together a number of countries in the Americas and uh, Australasia. Now he's engaged in renegotiating NAFTA, the trade agreement between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico that we've been living under for the better part of 25 years. And there are, best we can tell so far, two big demands from the president that are in the spotlight. Uh, let me start you with this one. President Trump wants what's called a sunset clause in the deal. This means it would automatically end in five years' time unless all three countries re-upped. And if you're with the president on this, you say, look, if we want to make sure this thing is really working as advertised, why not put ourselves on the clock so that there's an ongoing pressure to get this thing right? Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I think it's an extremely dangerous situation for the following reason. Uh, when you're trying to make these trade arrangements, you're not only trying to make them for the convenience of the government, you're also trying to make them so that private investment in all three countries can be made in a ways in which there's a chance for it to secure a return. A five-year time horizon for major investments and for major private agreements is very, very short. It sometimes takes a while to get the capital positions up, and then if you only have two or three years, you'll never be able to recoup. And so what happens is, as the president tries to keep his options open, he necessarily forecloses the options of all the private parties who are supposed to get gains from the trading situation. If those gains start to diminish, then the president can say, look, you see, NAFTA turns out really to be a failure because very little positive development has taken place, and so now we have all the more reason to cancel it. Uh, so what happens is you don't get a NAFTA natural experiment about how these things are going to work. If what you do is you put it on the clock, as he starts to suggest, what you do in effect is you basically guarantee that it's going to fail in the interim period so that when the five-year time comes up, uh, there's not going to be much that you're going to want to do. What you'll want to do is to have very long time horizons. And then, as with most long treaties, uh, what you want to do is to make sure that when the renegotiation comes up, it's a bound renegotiation. There's certain new kinds of problems that have to be added in and you deal with them, but you don't want to be able to take the whole basic structure and gut it and have to start over again. To give you a private example, if you're going to have a lease and you're going to make a long-term kind of investment, what happens is you normally have to have rules which will allow you to protect your investment after the expiration of the lease. And so what you do is you sometimes have clauses that call for the renegotiation of the lease at the end of the term, but they're never open-ended. Uh, they're either reasonable rents or there's an arbitration provision of some kind or another, but you never go back to square one. So this is, in effect, an effort to try and kill a perfectly sensible treaty in two steps instead of one, and I think it ought to be stoutly resisted. The other demand from the White House that's received a lot of attention is that all cars and trucks that are imported from Canada or Mexico have a minimum of 50 percent American-made parts. President obviously trying to ensure that more of this production is taking place in the U.S. What's wrong with that, Richard? Well, for one thing, every time you make a product in the United States, you're trying to sell it not only in the United States, but sell it somewhere else as well. 
Uh, presumably, these companies know how to run their supply chains and their inventories, um, and they think that this is a very foolish idea. And if, in fact, you force them to do it, you're again giving them a heavy accounting burden, which is not going to be easy to discharge because you try and figure out what 50% of value is uh, when these prices are going to be done by transfer mechanisms of one sort or another, subject to challenges on valuation and the sort. And then in the end, what you do is you put together a more expensive car, which means that you're going to have more difficulty selling it, either in the United States or overseas. Uh, so what happens is the president seems to think, and I think he's delusional about this, that if you try to impose a distributional requirement on the system, that somehow you'll be better off even if everybody else is worse off. And for him, that's fine. He thinks that trade agreements can be perfectly well if they win-lose. The difficulty about that, of course, is now Mexico and Canada start coming in, and they start making similar demands about cars in their country, and it turns out uh, you're going to find things very, very difficult if they put it there. Or if it's not going to be automobiles, you're going to have domestic content regulations for something else, refrigerators or whatever it turns out to be. And, and what this does, in effect, is it kind of creates a degenerate cycle in which each round of negotiation looks bleaker than the one before. And this is the kind of thing which is lose-lose in the long run. And why the president should insist upon it is a complete mystery as far as I'm concerned. These are two very, very fundamentally perverse kinds of an arrangements. And what they really are is cloak efforts to try to wreck the entire agreement. And for what? This, of course, we do not understand. But the thing that's most striking is this is a trillion-dollar-plus trade arrangement, and he thinks imbalances with respect to uh, deficits in the trading situation of the order of 60 or $70 billion are enough to wreck the entire thing. And he even misunderstands what a deficit is about. A trade deficit is a form of investment on the other side. Nothing really to worry about. Everybody cannot be running positive accounts. The kind of ignorance he brings to this subject is, to my mind, a a really painful demonstration of how uh, pre-committed ideological positions can work genuine harm uh, throughout the economic system. Now, our listeners know you as a staunch free trader, so they may be surprised to hear you say, as you did early on in the recent piece that you wrote about this for Defining Ideas, that you actually do think NAFTA needs to be updated, just not in the way that the administration is thinking about. T tell us how it needs to be changed. Well, I mean, I don't know of all the particular provisions, but for example, the Canadians suggested something in which you increase the level of movement with respect to various kinds of professional services across boundary line. And generally speaking, if you can find a way to liberalize NAFTA on this or any one of another countless number of points, that would be a good thing. Uh, the other point which has been constantly been made by people is that NAFTA is essentially a 1993 document which is in the pre-digital age. The web essentially becomes an independent, although small, operation in 1994 has exploded since then. If, in fact, there are complicated issues with respect to the way in which uh, uh, the expansion of the web is going to influence banking or the movement of intellectual property and so forth, somebody ought to think about it. But the key thing is to always think about it in ways in how can we manage to make NAFTA a larger treaty in which the principles of comparative advantage will have a greater sway than they currently do. And that is the point which he doesn't seem to want to understand. So my view about modifications is that you have possibilities for gains from trade which are unexploited by virtue of a treaty being 25 years old, and I'm trying to open them up. He sort of thinks that the existing agreement within his own territory is somehow or other bogus, and he's trying to shut it down. Uh, so both of us in favor of, of modifications, his are just going in the wrong direction. 
let me have you go through some of the criticisms that you hear about the trade regime, both from the left and, and now from a contingent on the right. Um, you acknowledge in the column that you wrote about this recently that there are losers to trade, but you say that the aggregate benefits outweigh those losses. What do you say, though, to those who argue that when those losses are geographically concentrated, when, for instance, it, it hollows out a town that was built around manufacturing, that there's a cost bigger than what shows up in the traditional accounting? Well, I agree that these costs have systematic effects, but there are two things to mention about it. One is that free trade also creates in the United States other communities which have the same kinds of positive benefits. So it's not as though you only look at communal losses when you're dealing with a free trade agreement, but you also have to look to communal gains. The second point is, is there is this kind of fantasy which assumes uh, that if a factory does not move to Mexico, it's going to remain exactly where it was. And there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that it's the case case. Many of the towns which turn out to be hollowed out are working under, for example, expensive labor agreements, which are very hard to implement, or they have dislocations in geography, uh, which are going to hurt them whether or not they go overseas or not. Uh, so the question you have to ask is, if they don't lose out to NAFCA, they're going to lose out to Tennessee. And I think it's really important to note that in some of the states uh, where the great losses have taken place, a larger volume of the work has gone to other states in the United States, which have more hospitable laws. One of the things that's quite striking is if you look at any of the data sets that can be put to available, you have two kind of general markets as to whether or not a system or a state is going to thrive. If they've got right-to-work laws which reduce the incidence of unions, that's a huge plus for people locating new factories there or moving factories there. And if they have a rather low tax system and a low regulatory system, that's another reason to do it. So notwithstanding the fact that we all are, all states are on a platform in which federal regulation is constant and a given, the variation in state levels mean that there are massive transportations going within states. So the question you have to ask is, when these things happen, does anybody from uh, Tennessee owe anything to anybody from uh, Illinois when the movement is there? The answer to that question is generally no. Uh, when it turns out that you're now going to Mexico, uh, I think the answer is probably the same thing. Or to put it another way, if there is going to be some kind of relief, I don't think it should be specific NAFTA relief. I think it should be the kind of relief that you give to all dislocated towns uh, to the extent that you think that there's something sensible that can be done in order to ease the burden that is otherwise in place. Uh, but the last thing you want to do is to say that the, by virtue of the fact that some people are losing these particular jobs, it puts a veto on the entire arrangement and therefore ignores the very palpable gains to other individuals which are not taken into account in this very narrow social calculus. One of the criticisms of free trade agreements that I hear from the right, from a lot of people, especially who identify as libertarians, is that NAFTA or CAFTA or TPP, pick your agreement, run to hundreds or thousands of pages long, which tells you that they're not actually free trade agreements because real free trade agreements would just be one page and they just say people are free to trade across borders. Uh, you have any sympathy for that argument? Well, I certainly do. I have some sympathy for it, but the question is, what's the alternative? If, in fact, you can find ways to simplify these arrangements, then I'm all in favor of it. In many times, there are legacy complications with respect to particular treaties and particular goods and so forth, uh, so that it's very difficult to work out the transition. Uh, but the point is, okay, you've got lots of limitations and lots of expansion of trades, um, but simply having no trade at all is worse. So this is the kind of Rand Paul argument. Uh, what we have now is better than what 
our good friend Trump wants to propose, but it's worse than some ideal universe. Well, move to the ideal universe. Don't shut the whole thing down and make things worse than they already are. Politics is, of course, a very complicated business because what you're always dealing with is which sort of imperfections are greater and which ones can you not tolerate. And under these kinds of circumstances, what they're doing is they're making a bad situation worse rather than a bad situation better. And I have very little sympathy for those arguments. Uh, TPP was subject to the same kind of arrangements, uh, but it turns out that in addition to the thousands upon thousands of pages, the overriding theme was one of sort of lower tariffs and larger American participation in the activities along the Pacific Rim. And what's going to go on now is that there's going to be free trade amongst other nations of which we will not be a part. Uh, Those things will not be perfect, but they will create comparative advantages. And now the United States, looking to get in, has only the protection of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. It doesn't have participation uh, with respect to the TPP, and that puts us at a disadvantage. I mean, I think, in effect, everybody understands their imperfections of one sort or another, but the question of whether an imperfection ought to be a black ball to stop thing, that's a huge leap, and it's one that I think we'd be very unwise to take. You mentioned trade deficits earlier and how the president misunderstands them. Are, are they a meaningful metric at all when we're trying to ascertain the value of trade agreements, or is this just something we should retire as a unit of analysis? Well, the first thing to understand, if you're going to have lots of trade amongst lots of nations, it will be a mere miracle if it turns out that the balance of trade in both directions are going to be exactly equal. Uh, So if you want to have any kind of a free trade agreement, you have to assume that in some cases, some companies are going to import more uh, than other kinds of companies. Well, what happens with respect to the so-called deficit? Well, the money just doesn't disappear. And so if it turns out that Mexico has a $55 billion trade surplus with us, that's $55 billion that then get left in the United States to be invested in various kinds of businesses, including those businesses that form new jobs. And so I am basically not sublimely indifferent to the question of a deficit, uh, but unless you can show me some ongoing dislocation that's created by it, I think in effect you ought to treat it as an interesting fact rather than as a fatal objection to the system. And NAFTA has been around for 25 years. And, you know, apart from the president ranting and raving about how it's the worst deal in Western civilization, uh, nobody has been able to identify the kinds of specific dislocations that are associated with this because the economy can absorb it. Put it in another way, um, if somebody were to come up to you and say, we'd like to invest $55 billion in your country, um, we're not going to go turn them away. If that turns out to be a trade deficit as opposed to an independent investment, I don't see any reason to treat the two things differently. Final question that I'll put to you is the legal one. There are groups that are opposed to the way the president is handling this NAFTA renegotiation who are threatening to take him to court on the grounds that he doesn't have unilateral power to terminate NAFTA without congressional consent. How open to that argument would a Justice Epstein be? Well, I haven't looked at the things closely enough, but I think the general consensus are that this is not quite a complete prayer or a Hail Mary pass, but it's an uphill battle. I think the strategy in litigation is actually somewhat different. It's the hope that if you can tie it up in litigation, get a favorable judge, slow the operation down, it then gives you a chance to reverse field, assuming that everybody else hasn't fled. But one of the things why we're so worried about all of this is that the moment Trump signs this, uh, that's going to certainly change the posture 
culture inside Canada and Mexico as to what they're going to do, and they may decide that they want to bolt from this particular agreement, at which point winning the lawsuit is not going to do you very much good. Uh, to me, the only responsible behavior for the president to do is to back down and to admit that he's been posturing. And, and I think what happens is the real influence in this particular case is going to come in the following way. There are many, many groups that import lots of stuff from Mexico, and they're going to be marching to the president and say, hey, Mr. President, you know, when we import this stuff, we're not suicidal. We think it's actually worth more than the money we have to pay for it, and we get a better source from there than from anywhere else. Why are you trying to hurt me? And then they're going to be the guys, many of whom also come from red states, and they're going to say, hey, Mr. President, you know, we sell a lot of wheat and a lot of grain and a lot of corn to Mexico, and if you're going to get out of this treaty, we're not going to be able to make those sales, and the market's going to go to Brazil or somebody else. Why are you trying to hurt us? And then there are a bunch of states which get money from the so-called deficits, which are invested in their state, and they see the gains from these things, and they're going to say, hey, why are you trying to hurt us? So what the president really is facing is there are going to be huge numbers of people who are quite happy with the status quo, who are frightened to death of what he's going to do, who are members of his party, and they're not going to go silently into the night. They are basically going to camp on his doorstep. And now maybe he thinks he knows enough about trade to overcome the practical judgment of everybody, but this is a subject on which his great weakness is. He doesn't know anything to begin with, and then what he does is he insists on doubling down on his ignorance. And this means that everybody else is desperately trying to force him out of his particular comfort zone to get him to see that he's not doing anybody any favors. And I think the question he has to ask himself is, yeah, he's a great deal maker, but he's not making deals in this particular case. The deals are being made by people who have the goods and services that are bought and sold, and that what his job to do is to make sure that those deals can continue to go forward. And they won't go forward if essentially he's playing brinkmanship with our trade partners, because in the end, NAFTA has done pretty well. Uh, there are obviously situations in which they're losers, but if you think they're losers under NAFTA, you wait to see the carnage to large numbers of American cities. If it turns out we pull out this agreement and other towns are hollowed out because their Mexican and Canadian markets disappear. There's no free lunch for the president in this case. He's uncommonly obtuse on this particular issue. And I hope and I pray that people with better sense will get close to him and take him and walk him off the ledge. Because if he jumps, uh, he's not going to be the only one who's going to be hurt. He's going to take a lot of people down with him. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein, and you can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.